And today, we're going to be talking about church discipline again. So point number one, we've got a, a few points here, I think four, as we work through this text. And the first thing that we see, if you're taking notes, is that here in this church in Corinth, there is a shocking tolerance of sin in the church. Point number one, there is a shocking tolerance of sin in the Corinthian church. Now, this, that doesn't surprise us. Uh, if you've been reading your Bible for any length of time and you know anything about the church of Corinth, we know they were wiling out in Corinth. They had problems, lots of problems. And Paul had to write this highly corrective letter to really resolve many different issues going on in the church. And there was just pure chaos and pandemonium in the church on many different levels. And so Paul is writing to set things in order. He is writing to combat the chaotic nature of the Corinthian church. And this is one of the issues that he addresses is brazen sin in the church that's not only being tolerated but celebrated. And he's going to implement there a system to bring that into check, if you will. And so that's, that's the context of this portion of Scripture we're looking at right now. So verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So Paul says, it's actually reported that this is going on in your church. I think in the language you can just hear Paul's, he's shocked. Just disbelief. I cannot believe this. Paul was there for 18 months. That's the second longest time he spent at any church. Paul's now gone, and he's getting these reports of how things are going in the church. And he says, I cannot believe it. It is actually reported to me that this kind of sin is going on, that a man has his father's wife. As best we can tell, that would be his stepmother. And so um, trying to watch my language here because there are youngsters in the room and so you guys get it I don't need to belabor this we know we, we understand what's going on so um, Paul says look this kind of stuff doesn't even go on amongst the unbelievers they lived in a, in a highly paganized culture and society rampant gross pagan idolatry and Paul says this is the kind of stuff that would make a pagan blush and it's happening in the church. It's happening in the church. And so he says, you're actually proud of yourselves. You tolerate and accept this stuff rather than being grieved over the sin of your brother and that you might actually lose your brother. And so Paul clearly expected and commanded the church to take sin seriously, right? Can we agree with that? Paul expected a holy church. Clearly, that's what Jesus expects. And that's what I expect from myself. Though I am not perfect, and I'll be the first to say it, none of us are, but man, that is our aim. Holiness, right? Not perfection, holiness. To be different, to be set apart, to be a peculiar people in this world, to be light that shines in a very dark place. That's the goal. So we are not like the world the norms of the world should not be the norms within the church. 1 Peter verse one, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 14 says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be 
holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. There it is, folks. It is not optional. It's not a suggestion. That is a command. For our God is holy, therefore we must be holy. Right? If we claim the name of Jesus, if we say that we are of God, that we are his children, then that necessitates that we take holiness seriously. And that must be so very true for the church. Jesus expects a holy church. And he has sanctioned a process whereby holiness is preserved in the body of Christ. And that is called church discipline. And that's what we are talking about today. And so with that, this kind of brings us into uh, the next point. And that is church discipline, the process, power, and goal. Church discipline, the process, power, and goal. So right now we're just laying out what is church discipline. If someone were to ask, what is it? That's what we're talking about right now. And so there is a process that has been given to us by Jesus and affirmed by Paul. There is a a special and unique power in it because Jesus has said that we do so with his authority and there is a goal in mind, and it's a good and godly goal, and that is our hope, that is our deepest prayer, that that good goal would come to pass. So, look with me at verse 3 in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul judges here with a sense of urgent decisiveness. This language may be kind of startling to us. Paul says, I'm not there, but I'm already judging this situation as though I were there. And we say, oh, wait a second, we're not supposed to judge. We're not to be judgmental hypocrites, but we are to call sin, sin, particularly within the church. And we'll talk about that towards the end of this message. And Paul says, I've already heard enough. I've already judged as though I were present. And he's very decisive about this. He does not play around. And that's the way that we have to be when it comes to sin, because Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us. Sin hardens our hearts. And the longer that we are in unrepentant sin, the harder our hearts can and will grow. The more calloused we become to any kind of correction, the more confirmed that we, uh, we become in that sin. So we have to move with a sense of urgency. You understand? Because if we just coddle it and overlook it for a long period of time and just let it go, we already know where it's going to go. And we know how far and how bad it will go. And so we, we have to we have to be sober-minded in these matters, and we have to be willing to do the loving thing and do it with urgency. Amen? Paul says that exercise to, uh, to exercise church discipline, that when we do that, we are to do it in the name and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says there. In verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So this harkens back to the instructions that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 18. I would encourage you to turn there with me. I want you to see this from your Bibles. Now this is the second time that Jesus even makes mention of the church. He had already said that the church was going to be built on that profession of faith, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that rock, that boulder, that monumental truth, the church would be built. And here we are today, 2,000 years later. I love that song that, that we were singing about the gospel. Amen? That's the foundation. Jesus is the Christ, and we are here to celebrate the gospel. That's the foundation of the church. It's, that's the power of God unto salvation. It's the only hope for sinful men and women. And Jesus said on that rock he was going to build his church, and the gates of hell itself could not stop it. But then the second time he mentions the church, and I'm sure at that point the, the disciples are like, what in the world is a church, right? By the second time he mentions it, he's dealing with the issue of sin in the church and the assembly of God's people. And so Matthew chapter 18, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus gives a four-step process to confront sin in the church. So he says... Moreover, if your brother sins against you, step one, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. That's what we want, right? That is the best case scenario. But if he will not hear you, step two, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, step three, Tell it to the church. So that's what we did two weeks ago. I had to bring it before the church publicly and bring you guys into the loop on what was going on. Then it says, if he refuses to hear the church, step four, let him, to be, let him be to you like a, a heathen and a tax collector. That's harsh language, but those are the words of our Lord Jesus. We are to see him as an unbeliever, really, because his behavior up to this point would cause us to, to think that he's an unbeliever. And Jesus said we're, we're to, to see him as such. And so <clears throat> this is not easy stuff. This is very humbling, sobering, heartbreaking stuff. Well, Jesus says in the midst of that, verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's some strange language to us, but essentially what he's saying is, is that when we exercise church discipline here on earth, we have the authority of heaven behind us. We have the authority of heaven, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus working in this. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So I've talked about this before, and I don't need to belabor this, but we often hear people talk about where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. There he is in the midst, as though if there are a couple of believers just fellowshipping in Jesus' name, that this is a, a special blessing and promise in that context. But that's not at all what this is talking about. Now, I do believe that there is something special that happens when the saints gather together as the body of Christ. Now, I will not minimize that or apologize for it. There is something uniquely special that happens when the body of Christ come together to worship Jesus and to build one another up in love. Amen? That's a big part of why we do what we do. But this verse right here, that's not what it's talking about. 
Jesus is saying that when the two or three witnesses that come to a person about their unrepentant sin gather together, they're in the midst of the church, the authority of heaven is behind them, and Jesus himself is part of this process, that Jesus is with us in a very special way. That's what that verse is talking about. And so even though this is a scary and a hard-to-do kind of a thing for the leaders and for the church, um, Jesus is with us. He commanded us to do this, and he said that he was in our midst when we do. Amen? And so we trust that the Lord is with us, that he is here in our midst as we do this uh, process of church discipline. And notice, if you want to turn back with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 5, again in verse 4, it says that this is to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are gathered together when you are gathered together now that's significant because people will challenge why are you doing this publicly even though it says to take it before the church uh, people will go about doing this different churches will do it in different ways and some people will challenge this public deal but that was what Jesus said to do and then Paul said when you gather publicly that's when you gather together as the church there are no distinctions made here Sometimes people will say, well, you should just do it in a smaller group of people that are familiar with the person and the issue and not do it when there are visitors in the church on Sunday. And that makes sense to me for sure, uh, but that's just not a distinction that the Bible itself makes. Jesus doesn't make that distinction. Take it before the church. This is the church. We gather on the Lord's day. And Paul says, when you are gathered, that implies when you gather as the church, the body of Christ, this is to happen. So that's why we're doing it. That's why we do it this way. Right? You guys with me? Okay. Now Paul says, when we reach this point, this is the language Paul uses. He says, to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now that's, that's heavy. That's trippy stuff. And that's not the only time we find that kind of language. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, dealing with some false teachers in the church, he says this. Uh, verse 18, wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he's naming names. Paul is naming names. And he says, I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, Timothy was left in Ephesus. That's where Timothy is at right now. And Paul left him behind, and it would appear that Paul began this church discipline process with these guys. He said, I've handed them over to Satan. Timothy, Timothy was commanded to stay there in Ephesus and to charge others that they teach no other gospel. Literally, no other, no other doctrine. Heterodidaskaleo is the phrase. And I was just trying to sound extra sophisticated. And so i got to do that from time to time. I'm just kidding. Anyways. Um, that was the command that Timothy received. No doubt a very intimidating one, as he was a young guy and probably despised because of his youthfulness, which is why Paul had to tell him, don't let anybody despise you for your youth. And so um, that was the command. And Paul uses that language, I have handed them over to Satan. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think we might get a little bit of a clue on this from Jesus himself. You remember what he said to Peter in Luke chapter 22? Um, now, Peter, man, he was very confident of himself, wasn't he? He had much self-confidence. And 
Jesus didn't have that same confidence in Peter. He knew what was coming. He knew what Peter was going to do. And so Jesus says to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, if Jesus told me that, I think my question would then be, well, you told him no, right? <laughs> Jesus, he, he asked you that, but you said no, correct? But that wasn't what Jesus said. He said, I prayed for you, Peter. I prayed that uh, your faith would not fail and when you have returned. That's, that word there is a word that is also rendered uh, for con to convert. To, turn, to repent, to turn around. And we know what happened. Peter did get sifted. Now, I don't know if we know what sifting wheat means, but when there would be a, 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 a wheat harvest, uh, there would be the, the grain and also what is called the, the chaff. And so the grain was what you wanted to harvest ultimately, but there would be, it would be mixed with the stuff that's really good for nothing. You certainly can't eat it. And so they would harvest all the grain along with the chaff, what you could do, what Jesus and his disciples were doing when they were walking through the grain field on the Sabbath, and it says they were grabbing handfuls of, uh, of grain, what they would do is they would pluck it, do like that, blow off the chaff, and then you could eat the grain. And it was kind of a gummy substance, almost like gum. Anyways, so when they were uh, harvesting, what they would do is they would have a winnowing fork, like a pitchfork, and you would have the grain and the chaff on what is called the threshing floor, and they would scoop it up and throw it up into the air, and the wind would blow, and it would blow the chaff off, and then the grain would drop back down. So that's what sifting is. That's when, when Satan gets a hold of us and just sifts us. I mean, it, it, it doesn't, I don't think it sounds as bad as it actually is. We've all been sifted, and it ain't good. I don't like getting sifted. And Satan, that, that was his, his uh, that made perfect sense to Peter, and he was like, that's what Satan wants to do to you, and he's going to. And I'm praying that you would withstand ultimately and that you would return and come back and strengthen your brethren. So we have, a, we have an enemy. We know this. He hates God, and he hates anything created in the image of God, which is us. And he especially hates those of us who are found in Christ and who are children of God, recipients of God's special love. Okay, And so I think there's a protection that is ours. For sure, as children of God, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. And also, he, Satan can't do anything to us that God does not allow. So I think what happens with church discipline is, is man, that when Jesus says you have the authority of heaven behind you in this process, all the gloves are off. The, the protection comes off of that individual. And Satan has free reign to just devastate that person's life. Now... What the enemy means for evil, what? God means for good. What the enemy means for evil, God means for good. It's amazing how God can do that providentially. Satan's intention is to destroy somebody, but in the way it works in God's power and providence is that ultimately that person could and would hopefully turn under such a, a crushing attack, come to their senses, repent, and come back. Much like the, the prodigal son, right? We all know and love that story. He, was, uh, he, he took the inheritance that the father gave him. He went out and wasted it in prodigal living. And then he was uh, destitute 
and he was trying to eat the very food that the pigs ate, and he couldn't even eat it. And he thought, man, I'm going to go back to my father's house because, man, even his servants have it better than, way better than this. And so it says, when he came to himself, he returned. And he returned, and he said to his father he wasn't worthy to be restored, but if he could just work as a servant. And that was humility, that was repentance. And what happened? The father restored him fully, fully. And uh, that's, that's what we're looking at here. That's, what we're, that's, that's the aim. That's our goal here, right? Paul says, hand them over to Satan that they may be saved, that they may be restored. And that's the goal, the ultimate goal. So our goal here is not to humiliate and alienate. I hope we understand that. That is not our goal. It is not our goal to humiliate and alienate anybody. That's not what we want to do. Our goal is certainly not to judge other people so that we can feel good about ourselves. Right? Amen? That is certainly not what's happening here. The goal is to come into obedience with the Word of God. The goal is to see brokenness, humility, repentance, and restoration. That's the goal. And you know what's so amazing about this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? What you may not know is this same guy that Paul says hand over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, we see this guy again in 2 Corinthians. And I'll read this to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. The brother was restored. He was forgiven. He repented. He turned from his sin. And now the issue was that the Corinthians weren't letting him back in. And Paul said, no, 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 this was what we wanted. The brother turned and he came back. Now forgive him, embrace him, bring him in, bring him in. And notice there, I'll read it again in verse 9, he says, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Paul wanted to know if the church would actually do what he told them to do. Would the church actually obey this command to exercise church discipline? as given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ, and they did. And it worked. And Paul said, praise the Lord, now bring him back in, restore him, forgive him. I've forgiven him. He's forgiven. Isn't that glorious? That's beautiful, and that's the goal. Now I want to shift towards what, what does this mean for us? How, how ought this to affect us, right? Because church discipline is really twofold. One, it is for the, uh, the, the person who's being disciplined, but it is also very much for the church of Jesus Christ. It's for the body of Christ. This ought to stoke us up. It ought to provoke us to a place of deeper holiness. It is meant to purify the church. And so I want to continue on with that. So point three, the severity of sin and the call to purge it from the church. The severity of sin and the call to purge it from the church. Verse 6. He says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul says, your glorying is not good in this. Your tolerance and acceptance of this sin, even having a braggadocious attitude, will ultimately do damage. You know, we cannot celebrate sin, and I would say we don't celebrate sin in the church here, but we also can't be neutral. God, you know, He loves righteousness, but He hates wickedness. He hates sin. And I will often pray, God, give me a holy hatred for sin. I want to, you know, I feel like if we, if we hated our sin the way God hates sin, I mean, what would that do for us personally in our own lives, you know? And so we have to have that hatred for sin. We do. And so Paul says, why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, that would have made perfect sense to them. They would get that. This is a word picture, like yeast that makes dough rise. Um, that's the idea of leaven and unleavened bread. So they would often eat unleavened bread and still do in Israel. And we obviously have it here too. And it's, it's just very flat bread. It's, it did not rise in the baking process because it did not have leaven in it. So leaven, like yeast, it, uh, it represents sin. Leaven is pervasive. It permeates. It takes over. And it only takes a little bit. That's kind of the idea. Just a little bit of leaven is sufficient to permeate through the whole loaf and make the whole thing rise. And we also understand the Bible uses this kind of imagery, puffed up, right? Puffed up, proud, arrogant. And so it only takes a little bit of leaven to do that. It only takes a little bit of sin to puff up and to make us boastful and arrogant. And so Paul says, you can't play with it. You cannot tolerate, celebrate, play with sin. You cannot be neutral with sin. You can't do that in the church either. So we have to take sin seriously in our lives, and we have to take sin seriously in the church. Otherwise, it will take over. And so this all harkens back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you know anything about the feast of, uh, in the Bible, Leviticus 23 really lays them out. Exodus, we see the feast of um, Passover, right? We're familiar with that, Passover. And so um, this would be a day when the nation would sacrifice lambs uh, for, for the sin of their families. And you remember in Exodus, they, what they do? They, they slaughtered the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the death angel passed over their house. Remember that? So that was a picture of Jesus, the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb who would take away the sins of the world, and uh, that, that looked forward to Christ coming. Well, in that seven-day Passover, there was three feasts that took place. So the first day of the Passover began, and that was um, the Passover, and that went for seven days. On day number two was unleavened bread. Day number three was first fruits, the first fruits. There were two harvests. There was the bar barley harvest and the wheat harvest in the agri agricultural you know, calendar. And so Jesus was crucified on Passover day, 
That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He was crucified on Passover day. He was in the grave during the day of unleavened bread. Now, during the feast of unleavened bread, people would go through their house and they would purge, remove every trace of leaven from the house. And so that was a picture of getting rid of the sin, cleansing sin, purging their families, their homes, their lives of sin. And so Jesus was in the grave on the day of unleavened bread. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave, and that was on the, the first fruits harvest. And that's a smaller harvest. There would be a greater harvest that would come later on in the year. And so that was a picture of Jesus rising from the grave, the first to come of many more. The first resurrection. Many more resurrections to, to come. And so that's, that's kind of what Paul is appealing uh, to here. He's bringing their minds back to this. And he's saying, we have to purge sin from the house. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our sacrifice. He has cleansed us from sin. We are forgiven. Therefore, we have to do our part by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. We have to fight sin. We have to get it out of our lives. Amen? That's what Paul is appealing to here. And so, um, we're not to celebrate or tolerate sin but remove sin from our lives and the church. He says, let us keep the feast with sincerity and truth. We need to walk in the light. We need to walk in the light as he is in the light. Amen? We need to be a church of people who walk in the light. You know what being in the darkness does? I mean, sin, hidden sin, corruption, it causes us to isolate and to separate. Right? That's what it does. So when it says to walk in the light as he is in the light... That is to be an open transparency and community. We have the knowledge of the truth, and we have a clean conscience before God and each other. So we don't have any need to hide. We don't have any need to isolate. We are walking in the light, a pure, clean church. That's what Jesus wants. That's what we want, isn't it? Isn't that what we want? I'm not convinced. Is that what we want? I'm starting to get scared over here a little bit. I hope that's what we want. Okay. And so walking in the light, being sincere, sincerity and truth. So next question here, I'll move through these quite a bit more quickly. That was kind of the, bit, the bulk of it right there. But aren't we all sinners? Yes, yes we are. And so the Bible's clear. Well, actually with one exception. You are, I'm not. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, we are all sinners, yes, indeed. And so we are sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. We have been saved from the penalty and the power of sin, and one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. I know we long for that day. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you say that you are not a sinner and that you don't struggle with sin, you're, the truth is not in you. And I know people who say that kind of stuff. They minimize it. They, ch they change their vocabulary around. I haven't sinned in seven years. I just struggle. It's like, oh, that's convenient. And so John would say to that person, the truth is not in you. And so he goes on, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, I love that. Don't you love that? And to confess, this doesn't mean we got to go back and recount every sin we've ever committed. It just means to agree. It is to agree with God, yes, you are good and holy, I am not, I'm a sinner, I need your forgiveness, I need your grace, I need your love and your acceptance. 
yes, I am a sinner. Kind of acknowledging the obvious. And so that's what God requires of us. Can we just be honest with ourselves and with God because he already knows and he's not surprised. When you go and sin today, when I sin today, God won't be shocked by that. He was already aware of that before we were even created. And so, but we got to be honest with ourselves and honest with God. And if we'll do that, God will forgive us. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that really is the pattern of the Christian life. He, he goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I think, to kind of clarify this. It says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. So John has written these things so that we would not sin. So that we wouldn't make a practice of sin. And that's really the, the idea here. John uses that kind of language in this book. There's a difference between sinning, struggling, um, falling into sin, maybe even giving ourselves to that sin momentarily versus habitual practice, living in it. That sin defines and describes my life, and I'm not even trying to fight against it. I'm not even trying to walk in holiness. There's not even an up and down kind of deal. It's just down and out for the count. And then saying, but it's all good. I'm good. We're good. No issues here. God loves me. He understands. He's with me. And, uh, you know, there's a real disconnect there. Do you understand? Like, we know what it is to be grieved by our sin, do we not? We know what it is to be grieved when we struggle habitually with sin. I mean, it, it can be crushing at times in those seasons of life. And so that's you know, that's kind of what we're talking about here. And Jesus said, if that is you, praise God. John says, if that is you, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Now, what is this advocate language? Well, this is like in the court of law. We have the accuser. We know who that is, Satan. And then we have the one who stands on our behalf to defend us before the accuser. And that is Jesus. And on what grounds does he make his defense? on his own works, on his own accomplishments, his own achievements accredited to us. That's the gospel. So he says, Father, I know that everything that the accuser says about this person, it is true. But he is accepted in me because of what I have accomplished for him or her. And I have put that on their account. So he is our substitute He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that each and every one of us deserved. He took our penalty on himself on the cross. God accepted that sacrifice. He rose again from the grave, and now he is our great defender. Amen? Amen. He stands by the Father's right hand, even now, interceding on our behalves, praying for us. Praying for us. And so, as a Christian, the life of a Christian, it is repenting. It is turning to Christ in faith, believing the gospel, being born again. And then it is walking this walk. It is falling and getting back up, confessing our sin, repenting. Christianity is daily repentance. Do you know that? Christianity, it's not a one-time repentance. It isn't like I repented when I believed 20 years ago and, you know, just kind of doing my own thing ever since. No, it's, it's daily, really, walking, sometimes hour by hour, moment by moment, struggling, struggling in this life, and confessing and trusting in Jesus. And you know, that's, that's what's so glorious about it. Our assurance is not in our own obedience. Did you know that? 
My assurance of my salvation is not in my performance, and it should not be in yours either. If that's what you are looking for as your hope, that you're good and that you're going to make it to heaven one day, man, that's a sad way to live. My assurance is solely in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his accomplishments on my behalf. I am trusting that. And even in that, I will fall. I will fall and I will get back up. And then I will fall again and I will get back up. But I will continue to persevere by God's grace and his spirit until that great day when I see my Savior face to face. You know, that's the Christian life. We all struggle. We're all sinners. But there does come a point when a person commits high-handed sin and says, you know what, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to turn. I'm not going to heed the warnings and the cautions of the pastors or the church. And, you know, they, they go so far as to even say that God has blessed their sin and has given them the right of way here. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. That's what it boils down to. Does that make sense? That's what we're dealing with here. That's, that's uh, the distinction between us all being sinners and struggling with sin and then just high-handed, brazen rebelliousness. That leads to church discipline. So, let's move on to the next point. The church has a responsibility to hold the church accountable. The church has the responsibility to hold the church accountable. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. So Paul is referencing here a letter that he has already written to the Corinthians, in that he instructed them not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now the church understood this to be a reference to unbelievers, to the world. And Paul clarifies, no, no, I was not talking about the world, I was talking about Christians. He says, I was talking about the church, exclusively believers. He said that you would have to go out of the world to separate from the world, right? And that can't happen. And so here we are, we're in the world, and we have to do our best by God's grace to not be of this world, right? And so he said, you can't go out of the world, you're, you're in it. We're in the world. But you have to separate from professing believers who are given to these kinds of things, and so, um, we're to do this by living holy lives, by being salt and light in the midst of the world, right? We're to be holy. And so, verse 11, he says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So Paul clarifies that they were to separate from sinning believers. And I would say that the way these are described here, this would describe kind of a state of being. As we look at these things, you know, a lot of these things are kinds of things that really can be hidden in the heart. But by time it is like public knowledge that you are in this, that pretty well that kind of describes who and how you are. I mean, it, it has gone full orb. Um, James talks about sin. You know, it, you know, it's tempting. We're not tempted by God. We're tempted by our own desires. It's like we're, we're lured in. It's like bait. And then we bite. And then sin, what does it do? When it becomes full grown, it brings forth death. It's this process. And so when you get to the point where you are a sexually immoral person or you are 
a coveter or you are an idolater or you are a reviler or you are a drunkard or an extortioner. That's pretty bad. It's really gone, it's gone quite a ways for quite a while. Does that make sense? And so this sexual immorality here, this is fornication. That is sex outside of marriage, outside of the marriage bed, the confines that God has instituted, initiated in marriage. That's sexual immorality, adultery, adultery, homosexuality and pornography. And I could keep going, but those are the, that is what is kind of bound up in this word, sexual immorality, covetousness, a voracious appetite for more, for more, discontent. To be idolatrous is a wor- to worship false gods, demons even. Um, but I would say, really, it's to worship the creation rather than the creator himself. We worship lesser things, silly, trivial, stupid things, maybe even very important meaningful, beautiful things, but it's still not as worthy as God of our worship. And we worship those lesser things instead of God. Revilers, that's, that's verbal abuse is what that specifically means. Um, I think really you could add to that any sin of speech, gossip, slander, murmuring, backbiting, complaining. Um, and man, you know, I think these things, as I talk about these things, probably hit very close to home for many of us, Right? Drunkards, alcohol dependency, abuse, and intoxication itself even. Extortioners, that's a swindler, a robber, something that is snatched or seized, taking something that doesn't belong to to you, right? And so Paul specifically mentions these sins and says that if this is true of someone in the church, you're not to even eat with them. I mean, that's that's heavy because I got to say, I don't think that we see sin with the same severity that Paul sees and addresses sin, Right? I think as I walk through that list and talk about these things, we probably should all feel a little uncomfortable if we're honest with ourselves, right? Because, man, the way Paul treated sin, it was serious, very serious. And so um, Paul says we're not even to share a meal with such a person. And so, okay, so that's a high standard. You know, how are we doing in this area? How are we doing? How are we doing? That's, that's something that we really have to take seriously here. So this brings me to my next question. What, what kind of sin necessitates church discipline? Well, according to Paul, many of us would be in, be in danger of church discipline. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, that's kind of scary stuff. I just say this to say we got to take this stuff. I think we need to repent today and start taking this stuff a lot more serious, don't you? We tend to make arbitrary classifications of sin. There is the sin which is unacceptable, and then there's my sin, which is okay. Right? There's, there's the really bad sins. There's, you know, drug abuse and, you know, other things like that, sexual immorality. But then there's my sin, pride, arrogance, murmuring, anger, laziness whatever, right? And that, that somehow that's okay. That's, God doesn't get as mad at those things. Is that true? No. What God, you know what God hates? He hates pride. He hates pride. And you know the thing about pride that is so discouraging is that people who are prideful don't know that they're prideful. And I don't know that they can be convinced that they're prideful. And so that's, that's, a, that's a dangerous thing, you know. 
I just thank God that he made me as humble as he did. You know, <laughs> praise God, I don't have that problem. I got enough problems, that's one that I don't need. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Obviously a joke there. All right, so, you know, clearly some sins are more severe than others and are clear grounds for expulsion, sexual scandal, unbiblical divorce, abuse, abandonment, etc. But it can be really any sin that is practiced with an arrogant, obstinate unwillingness to repent or even the slightest attempt to be accountable or to overcome that sin. When you are just defined by that sin and you are not willing to even call it sin and you're not willing to do anything to try to overcome that sin or receive any kind of correction or rebuke and man that's that's really grounds for that's grounds for um church discipline paul says you know and so it's serious stuff however if someone's struggling or even constantly defeated man there's going to be an abundance of grace you know that an abundance of grace even if their obedience is very slow and minute. If there is something there that says, I'm, I'm grieved over this, I'm trying so hard, I can't do it. Look, there's, there's an abundance of grace there. That is not someone that's headed for church discipline, you know? And so I, I, I think we all can relate with that because we're all there to some one degree or another. We all got stuff that we are working on that we're trying to overcome in this life. And so there's an abundance of grace because we're all, we're just messed up people trying to do the best we can with what we got, right? And so, praise God that we've got grace, we've got forgiveness, we've got the strength of His Holy Spirit. We have gracious brothers and sisters that are helping us to walk through this life so we don't have to do it alone. And that's what it's about. So does every church discipline case look the same? It does not. And I'll explain why. It really is a case-by-case basis. It is not a one-size-fits-all. There have been times where we have put people out quietly, and I'll, I'll tell you why that is, because I think some people in this room are, are familiar with when that has happened, and that's because it's not really a matter of sin that they need to repent of. They have repented many, many times. It's a matter of um, division, divisiveness, doing constant damage to the body of Christ, constant damage for years. And so, there, the, Paul actually says in Titus 3.10, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. So there is a time when a person just needs to go for the sake of the health of the church itself, because they're divisive and causing trouble and hurting people, and it's cancerous and it's harmful for the sheep. And to get up in the pulpit and just blast that person, you know, I hate to use that language, you get what I'm saying, that would not be the best thing or the most loving thing to do, you know? There just comes a point when for the sake of the body of Christ, they have to be told they need to go. And so there is a time and a place for that, but there are some cases where the Bible calls for a more severe rebuke, especially when it comes to pastors. That's why James 3.1 says, "'My brethren, let not many of you become teachers,' knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Pastors are held to a higher standard. We are teachers of God's word. We can't claim ignorance. I can't say I didn't know. I just taught you about all of these things, but I'm not held to that standard. You understand? There's a stricter judgment that we incur. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So, 
there has to be a credible, uh, you know, if, if, if there's an accusation against a pastor, it can't just be one person's hearsay necessarily. I mean, don't get me wrong. It needs to be in, investigated thoroughly, thoroughly. We do not believe in sweeping stuff under the rug or just assuming that any pastor is infallible or not, not capable of falling. You, you tracking with me here? So I'm not minimizing that. But the Bible says there has to be, like, we can't just destroy somebody uh, without having, having the facts, having credible uh, factual evidence that such is the case. But then it says this, once you reach that point, when you do have that, verse 20, those who are sending rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. So a pastor when the accusation is proven to be true, is to be rebuked in the presence of the whole church, it says. That's serious. And so pastors live with the weight of that, you know. I'm in the, I'm in the spotlight. As I have a public ministry. If I fall, uh, it's going to be a very public failure, and that's a heavy weight to carry. God help me. I, I have no intentions of falling. And I try to set myself up to walk with great wisdom, to walk circumspectly, to have much accountability to be surrounded by men and women of God who can speak into my life. But I live with that weight, knowing that this is true. And so you understand there's a time really for quiet dismissal. Sometimes that's what's necessary, and sometimes there's a time for public rebuke. And the Bible kind of makes allowance for both of those. Does that make sense? Okay. Moving on, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So Paul says he has no concern in judging those who are outside the church. That's God's business. God is judge, and he will judge those people. Um, but he does say that we have a responsibility to judge those who are within the church. We have a responsibility to hold people accountable and to deal with sin in our camp. To do it lovingly, graciously, patiently. We're not the sin-sniffing police. We're not the sin Gestapo. You know what I mean? And so the Holy Spirit's capable of bringing things to light, but we're to take seriously. Are we our brother's keepers? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. You remember that when God asked uh, Cain, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? You know, I'm not, no, we are. We care for one another. We love one another. We're in a battle together. Do you understand that? I'm not a peacetime pastor, I am a wartime pastor. Uh, there are bombs going off all the time, and so we have to, we have to live like that. And so if there's sin in the camp, we've got to take seriously that, and we've got to hold each other accountable to that end. We've got to purge the sin from the camp. We've got to provoke one another to love and good works. So question, is church discipline going to be a frequent occurrence for our church now that we've kind of, now that we've kind of opened this door here and, and have gone here? Um, you know, is it going to be communion on the first Sunday and excommunication on the third Sunday? And we've got a list, a running list. And, you know, careful, you may already be on it. In fact, no, it's not going to be like that. No, that's not. I hope that we don't ever have to do it again. It took a long time to get to even this point, you know. It took a long time to get here, and that's not what we want. But it really depends on us. You know, it depends on us. If we're going to struggle forward and be accountable and walk in the light as he is in the light, or if we're just going to, say, forget it and do our own thing and, and fight against the, you know, the leadership and the, the accountability of our brothers and sisters, that's really what it, what it depends on. And so 
the elders at this church are committed to doing anything and everything in our power not to get it to this point. Believe me when I tell you, we did. We really did. Everything in our power to not get to this point. All right, next question. Um, should I hide my sin? I mean, this is crazy. I don't know. I, you know what? I'm just going to not let anybody in now, right? The obvious answer is no, we should not hide our sin. That is often the reason why it gets to this point. I mean, we were shocked, you know. We didn't know. It had been well hidden. And then by the time things come to the light, it's too late. People treat it like it's too late. They're done. And so that's why we can't do that. We have to be open. We have to, I'm not saying you got to get up here and, and tell it to everybody necessarily, but um, I have seen that done. I'll talk about that in just a moment. I'm wrapping up here. Um, but the Bible is clear on the necessity of being open about sin and our struggles. David, when he was in sin, described his condition like this in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality turned into the drought of summer. But then this, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we hide our sin, man, it just kills us, drains us. And David described it as his bones growing old in him, his vitality being sapped. But he said, I turn to you, I confess my transgression, and you forgave. We have a forgiving God. Isn't that glorious? We have a forgiving God. Proverbs 28, 12 says, he who covers his sins will not prosper. Mark that down. Proverbs 28, 12, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. We have to confess our sin and forsake our sin. We are not to hide our sin. James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectant, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So we are to be a people who confess our sins. Find someone safe, someone you trust. Share with them, confide in them, ask for prayer. We're to be a praying church, praying for one another. Amen? And so being open, walking in the light. Great damage is done when the church does not deal with sin when it's just swept under the rug. And a lot of times pastors will do that because they are not confrontational. Look, I'm not a confrontational guy. But I've seen pastors in the past who, because they were non-confrontational, let stuff just get swept under the rug, behavior that was doing damage in the church. You know? And then when someone comes along and does say something about it, they get attacked because, well, nobody else has ever said anything about it after all these years, so you must be the problem. You're just attacking me. You know, that happens. Great damage is done by the concealing of sin. It's like cancer. You conceal it. You don't do anything about it. I knew a lady. She, uh, cancer really ran in the family. And so she got cancer and she knew it and she was in denial about it. Until uh, we were all hanging out somewhere one day and um, I noticed uh, someone was crying like frantically and, and I went to them and I was like, hey, what's, what's going on? And they pointed to the lady, and uh, she, ha she always has sweaters on in the summertime. We were, I, I guess I never really connected the dot, like, what's that about? Well, it had opened up the sweater, she had a shirt on, and had a tumor in her chest the size of a grapefruit. And that's, you know, that's a gnarly story. 
She had been hiding that. She couldn't be honest with herself or her family, and it had progressed to that point. And so that's what we can be like with sin. It's right there. It's progressing, and we're hiding it. And that, that it's all bad. You know, I was in a church one time, a very big church, and there was a couple. The husband traveled a lot. He got off into pornography really badly. And uh, then while he was away, his wife was cheating on him, and she got pregnant. Pretty sure that that was the case. She got pregnant through that adultery. And they confessed their sin to the pastors, and they got up in front of the church, hundreds of people, three services, and confessed all of that to the church. They had been in ministry. You know what? The, the body of Christ forgave them. They went through counseling through the church. They got restored. They, he went into the school of ministry. They led a home group. I was in the guy's home group. You know, that, that's amazing to me, how God can restore and redeem situations. If we'll be open and honest, if we'll be transparent and repent, right? Okay, so last thing here. How should church discipline affect us and our church? Well, one, it should cause us to examine ourselves and do business with God. Do we have sin? Do we have sin in our lives? Do we have sin in our camp? Confess it. Today is the day. Confess it and forsake it. Turn from it. Do not minimize sin and don't compromise on it. Call it what it is. And if you're a believer, then you know. You know good and well you've got to do business with God on this. You've got to repent of this sin. You've got to turn from it. You've got to get honest with God, honest with whoever may be involved in it as well, and, and do what you've got to do. And we're here to help you and encourage you in that any way we can. If someone has sinned against you, you need to have the courage to go to that person. Because that's step number one. That's step number one. You have to have the courage to go to the person that has offended you. All right? And the problem is we don't. People don't do that. Or they just want the pastors to do it without them taking the first step to say something to that person. If someone has sinned against us, and, uh, or excuse me, if we have sinned against somebody and they come to us, we need to humble ourselves and examine ourselves. The reason why people don't want to go to people is because they know they're going to get attacked. Because we don't like being called out. And so what do we do? We defend ourselves. We attack back. We can't do that. So if, if someone comes to you and says that you have sinned against them, you need to examine yourself and humbly, graciously receive that and consider whether there's any truth to it or not. We need to be a church that is eager to do what the Word of God says, even when it's hard. And we need to be a church that is eager to see restoration of repentant believers. Amen? We need to be a church of grace, a grace place.